Good morning, church. Good morning to those who are watching from home. And uh, before we jump into Daniel, I just want to put a little plug in about these um, uh, meditations for Holy Week. This is Holy Week. Probably a good time for us to kind of slow down a little bit and focus on each of the days of Holy Week, the significance of those days. And this tool right here is to help um, us do that. It's some meditations from the Gospel of Mark. You can pick those up on the way out on that table uh, as you're heading out those doors. So I would encourage you to do that. Or if you have another tool, just use that. But let's slow down uh, for a holy week. The city of Lakeville, Minnesota, holds an annual celebration called uh, Panaprog, which features the Miss Lakeville annual scholarship pageant, the beer, brats, and bingo, and a carnival, and the always exciting yet often controversial Baby Crawlathon. Baby Crawlathon. And one year in particular, the emotions ran high when the winner, a 10 month old Berkeley Bailey, was disqualified. Berkeley crossed the finish line as the clear winner, but moments later, event organizers huddled and then stripped her of the first and only title of her young life. Judges ruled that the toddler actually pulled herself forward with her left side and then lifted her right arm in the air. That's not allowed, apparently. Well, Panaprog President Diana Niemeyer explained to a reporter that the rules were established to make the competition fair and give everyone a level playing field. The toddler's mom, Samantha Moore, protested the rule is unfair to babies who have a unique way of getting around. That's the only way we've ever seen our baby crawl, she said. That's all she's ever done. The doctor told us it was a crawl. Well, again, the president, Diana Niemeyer, said, well, the issue first arose a race a year earlier when a baby crawled like a bear on his hands and feet, and he finished the race first, but was also disqualified because, as Niemeyer explained, when you do it that way, you're not a crawler, you're a speedster. All right, that's a true story. Now, I don't know if that makes it funnier or more pathetic. I have a niece that as a baby, she, she would have won the race, but would have been disqualified because she, when she crawled, her knees never were on the floor. And she just would zip by uh, Bethany at that time. Uh, well, the Crawlathon controversy is an example of the innate struggle we have when others get ahead. A little innocent competition can turn into conflict rather quickly. That's spoken from one of the most competitive guys on the planet, me. Well, we turn our attention today to likely the most familiar true story in all of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. Now, I wish, really, we could read Daniel chapter 6 as if it were the very first time. See, most people know uh, that Daniel was in the lion's den. Most people know that he was rescued from the lion's den, but only some know why it happens. See, what set the whole thing in motion was the jealousy over one man getting ahead, one man getting promoted. So let's look at this. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, we continue in our study, uh, being a bright spot in a dark world. 
Now, it's worth noting that as you're turning there, let me just note this, that uh, this is the third king uh, that Daniel had served under. And if my educated guess is correct, that when Daniel was taken into Babylon, he was between the ages of 14 and 20, then as we come to chapter 6, it is roughly 70 years later, so that would put Daniel pushing 90. So how's Daniel holding up? I mean, he was a great starter, but how will his finish be? I mean, he started out the gates with, with gusto and, and, and integrity and purpose, but will we find him just kind of coasting now to the finish line? All right, look with me at Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Now, I have organized the material under five key words. Five key words. They all begin with the letter D. Distinguished, despised, disciplined, dumped, and delivered. Distinguished, despised, disciplined, dumped, and delivered. All right, let's look at the first word, distinguish, distinguish. All right, chapter 6, verse uh, 1. It says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. And so as part of the uh, takeover of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians, Darius is made king. And at the end of this chapter, uh, in verse 28, you would note that it speaks of the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And you go, well, which is it? Well, if you're aware of the history of the Jewish people and their return from captivity to Jerusalem, you recall that it was during the time of Cyrus's reign. Now, I need to point out that some suggest that King Darius and King Cyrus are the same person. That, that Darius is more uh, the title and Cyrus is his actual name. I don't think it's necessary uh, for us to land there. And I believe that Darius and, and, and Cyrus ruled concurrently with Darius being subordinate to Cyrus. Now, one of Darius's first responsibilities is to do a little restructuring of the organizational chart. So you have uh, 120 satraps who were really officials under Darius to help govern the former, former kingdom of, of Babylon. He then, Darius then appointed uh, three men who were given, over, uh, the, given in, oversight to these 120 officials. They were responsible as these three guys to supervise them, especially in their work of collecting taxes uh, for Darius. Now notice the verse tells us that Daniel was one of these supervisors. Now what shouldn't be lost in all of this is that God's hand is in it. He's moving the parts. He is orchestrating all of this. God keeps Daniel in a high government position. It's also worth noting, however, that Daniel performed well in his position. He was not a slacker. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him, uh, set him over the whole kingdom. Now it says exceptional qualities, the NIV, some translations say because of his excellent spirit. The idea is it's God-enabled abilities. So one of the three supervisors, Daniel, stood out from the other two because of his exceptional qualities. 
And the king, uh, he was so impressed by that that he's, he's going to put uh, Daniel in charge of the whole kingdom. And that tells us that he had exceptional qualities. It's not incidental. It's not just this side note, this, this afterthought. It is what drives the rest of the story. And so I pause here and I ask the question, what do others say about you on your job? What do others say about you at work and, and the task you're given to? What do they say about you? There was this sign in the store window that said, no help wanted. No help wanted. And two men passed by this store and saw this sign. And, and one said to the other, you should apply. You'd be great. <laughs> and no, you don't want it said of you. No help. You're no help here. Can you go find do something else? Yet all too often, I've heard it, and perhaps you have too, people say, you know what, I will never hire a Christian again to work for me. I will never hire a Christian to do a job at my house. I will never hire a Christian to plow my driveway, to work on my car. No, never again. Never again. They showed up late. They, they, weren't, they weren't honest. No, I'll never hire a Christian again. Yeah, I've heard that. See, no matter what we do, we should distinguish ourselves as an exceptional worker, as one who gives our best. And as I've said before in this study, God's not looking for influential people he can make faithful, but faithful people he can make influential. Well, Daniel had been faithful for the last 70 years. Now in his 80s, he continues to shine where God had placed him. He's still a man of integrity and outstanding character. Uh, the power of a virtuous life extends into old age. Daniel was distinguished from the rest. And he was about to be promoted. Which brings us to our second word, despised. Despised. Look at uh, verse 4. It says, at this, referring to the pending promotion, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and the conduct of government affairs. Now, how can anybody not like Daniel? He worked hard. He did his job. He didn't appear to be obnoxious. Was it because he abused his privileges? No, there's no indication of that. But you see, there's nothing worse than someone who is punctual when you show up late every day. <laughs> so what's motivating this? Jealousy. Jealousy. And so they try to catch uh, Daniel doing something he isn't supposed to be doing. They tried to find something, anything they could to discredit Daniel. And notice what the middle of verse 4 says about their attempts to dig up some dirt. But they were unable to do so. They found nothing. The end of verse 4 goes on, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. There wasn't anything they could catch him in the act doing that was wrong. Nothing. Nothing. No water gates. No discrepancy with his financial statements. No mishandling of the funds. I mean, they looked for it. They checked his internet history. They talked to his associates. They talked to his past co-workers. Nothing. There were no skeletons in his closet. There's no woman who came forward about some past sexual encounter. No one. Nothing. 
Daniel's public life and private life were the same. Same Daniel in every single context. You see, anyone who thinks that there's a dichotomy between our secular life and our spiritual life hasn't read the Bible. The Bible makes no such distinction between living one way on Sundays and another way the rest of the week. You can't go on, well, that's just business. That's what we do during the week, on the week, but on Sunday it's different. No, you cannot support that from Scripture. Now, suppose, suppose an enemy, enemy of yours hired a private investigator to look into every aspect of your life. What would they find? How you treat your children? Your online shopping, your history on your computer, your business deals, texts on your phone, nothing off limits. If others tried to find grounds for charges against you, would those charges stick? You see, there isn't, there isn't a week that goes by that we don't see some government official or, 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 or some athlete, some celebrity, or, or some Christian leader come under some accusations. You notice that? And while the accused respond the same way each time when those accusations come out, denying the charges, of course, sadly, all too often, they do stick. There's usually at least a thread of truth in them, or or as it unfolds, it's actually worse than the original cover story. Not so with Daniel. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Don't you want that said of you? I want it said of me. Daniel was a man who was being watched and they found nothing. Well, enter plan B. Confront him with a challenge of loyalties. Will he remain loyal to his God or loyal to to the king. And so verse 5, it says, finally, these men said, will we never find any basis for charges against this man? We won't. We won't find any uh, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so the plot thickens. These troublemakers, they go to the king and they say to the king, you know, the, verse 7, the royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, the governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, I was immediately struck by the words there, have all agreed. Really? All of them. They all, Daniel? Daniel agreed to this. I mean, aren't they trying to give the king the impression Daniel feels the same way? And honestly, I even wonder if they really consulted with all the people that they mentioned here. I think it's one of those classics, everyone feels the same way. And many of pastors have been run out of churches and leaders stepped down from their positions by this form of manipulation that everyone in the church feels the same way. Rarely Is that the case? And usually, it's just a handful of people motivated by jealousy or out of hurt feelings or simply because they didn't get their own way. Let's be honest. Well, the king's ego is is fed here. He's going to be God for a month. He's flattered to think that they all want loyally to go to him and that for 30 days, people will pray to him as their fearless leader. 
Anyone who prays to any other god or any, any man during the next 30 days except to the king is going to be thrown in the lion's den. And so they lean on the king, verse 8. They lean on the king, write up this decree. And they, really, they want to push this law through as quickly as possible before the king stops to think about it. And they can just get this into law. Their plan to get rid of this Daniel once and for all would satisfy their hatred. And, they just, and I can just picture them leaning over and saying, you, know, you don't have to really read it all. Just sign it. And he signs it. Darius never thought that this edict would target his key men. It would become the law of the Medes and the Persians, which simply meant it cannot be altered. All right, third word, disciplined. Discipline. So an edict's given. And what did Daniel do? Now, perhaps I wasn't paying close enough attention in Sunday school. That's, that's very possible. But the way I always understood this was that the law was given and Daniel, in an act of defiance to the king, went and prayed. Wrong. That's not entirely true. It's not, this isn't reactionary. I mean, we miss this. We miss the entire point of this passage. I believe it all boils down to six words. Six words. Verse 10. We'll find those six words. Verse 10. From the NIV, now, now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. Now, get this, just as he had done before. File that away. I mean, if you underline in your Bible, underline those six words. Just as he had done before. Daniel wasn't this freedom fighter who decided at this moment he's going to go against the law. How dare you do that? Look what I'm going to do now. That wasn't it. It isn't the law that got Daniel all worked up, that he had to make a statement. Daniel didn't start this resistant, resistance movement to oppose an oppressive government. Daniel did what he had always done. He prayed. Very significant. Look at me, verse 13. We see it again. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still, he still prays three times a day. Still. Now, Daniel did have one flaw. He was too predictable in his prayer life. The conspirators were counting on Daniel's consistency. If he weren't consistent, this plan would have never worked. He was caught in the act because this is what he did all the time. Daniel regularly did this and others knew about it. Daniel did not change anything he'd been doing for 60 years. Daniel was steady, he was disciplined, and he, and he made it a priority to form holy habits, and so he was caught in the act. Would I have been caught in the act? Would you? Now, here's the thing. We all want to be like Daniel in his courage. We all want to be like Daniel in his vitality. We all want to be like Daniel in his unwavering commitment, his, his spiritual potency. But do we want to be like Daniel in the forming of holy habits? See, most want the benefits of marital intimacy. Most want the joys of godly friendships. 
Most want the blessings of a healthy church and, and, and want the vibrancy of a close walk with Jesus. Most want an influence uh, on our unbelieving friends and loved ones, but, but, do, but, but not the discipline it takes day in and day out to arrive at that. In a what's-in-it-for-me culture, in a society that feeds on instant gratification, listen, we expect maximum benefit with minimum effort. We do. I'll get the best and everything will be this awesome benefits here, minimum effort. Now, do you think Daniel could have reasoned here? I can still pray privately. I don't, do I really need to make an issue out of this? I'll pray in my heart. I'll, I'll pray at night when no one can see me, what I'm doing. I mean, it's, it's only for 30 days. For Daniel, no law of man was going to stop him from talking with his God. For Daniel, prayer was more precious than life. And of all the chapters we have seen so far in Daniel, chapter 6 confronts us with what I believe will one day be one of the greatest challenges to our faith. Loyalty to God and submission to an, an, an evil government. Now, Scripture is clear that God has ordained all authority. To say yes to the laws of the land and to governing authorities is saying yes to God. He's established all authorities. But that does not mean all authority should always be obeyed. John Piper says this, The ultimate criterion of right and wrong is not whether a ruling authority commands it, but whether God commands it. It is right to resist what God has appointed in order to obey what God has commanded. Now, we have to be very, very careful here. Very careful here. If governing authorities require us to disobey Jesus, then at that point, we must do as Daniel did and as Peter did in Acts, and determining that we must obey God rather than men, and then risks our lives and accept the consequences of that decision. But, but, if the demands of those in authority do not require disobeying Jesus, you know, speed limits, red lights, stop signs, all right, income taxes, curfews, building codes, Fishing, hunting licenses. I mean, how far do I go here? You fill it in. Those things we must submit. Well, a law was put in place. Daniel went back to his room. He did what he did every other day. His enemies knew they'd catch him in the act. It was a slam dunk in their plan. Daniel was set up. And he wasn't the only one who was set up. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. When the king heard this, what Daniel had done, he was greatly distressed. Why is he so troubled? Not because he resented Daniel praying to Yahweh. I think he's troubled because he knew he had been manipulated. He realizes he had been set up. He does everything in his power to kind of change that. But the law that was now put into effect was now the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it couldn't be changed. The king was trapped by his own decree. Now perhaps you've heard of Sir Robert Alexander Watson Watt. 
He was a Scottish uh, physicist. He's credited with the invention of radar, the invention of radar. And several years after inventing radar, Sir Robert Watson Watt was pulled over in Canada for speeding. He'd been caught in a radar trap. (laughs) How ironic is that? He told the police officer, had I known what you were going to do with it, I would have never invented it. (laughs) He wrote this poem. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of his radar plot, and this with others I could mention, a victim of his own invention. That was the king, a victim of his own invention, his own decree. He was displeased with himself. He was angry at himself. He simply reacted. He did a foolish thing. All right, we come to our fourth word, dumped. Dumped. Uh, Verse 16. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. Now, don't picture this little cage at the zoo, but a pit, some sort of underground pit, likely, with this side entrance for the lions to come and go, and an entrance at the top to kind of dump them in and to view the execution. You see, the main reason that the kings had lions in the first place, places of, of execution. Now, I said of the fiery furnace that of all the ways, uh, you know, that I could die, being burned to death would be kind of one of the worst. All right, being eaten alive by hungry lions, just top that. Daniel's dumped in the pit. And in verse 16, that's us in where the king's at. He says to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually, just as he had done before, may that God rescue you. Now all the king could hope for now was a miracle. And verse 18 says, then the king returned to his palace. He spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. The king could not sleep. Likely, Daniel sleeping just fine with the lions. You see, it's better to trust God in the lion's den than to be without God in the palace. Well, at the crack of dawn, verse 19 tells us, Darius ran to the pit. I mean, he didn't want this to happen. And he calls out to Daniel, verse 20 says, in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, Has your God been able to rescue you from the lions? Now, we don't know how much time lapsed between the king calling out to Daniel and Daniel answering, but it must have felt like eternity. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You alive or not? Tell me. And you know the story. The lions weren't very hungry, so they left Daniel alone. That's what some liberal scholars tell us. I don't know. They seem pretty hungry in verse 24 when Daniel's enemies are thrown in and devoured in seconds by these same lions. They might want to try a different idea. Oh, I know. Daniel found a little corner in the pit and he hid. Now, God's word tells us exactly what happened. Leads to our final word, delivered. Delivered. Daniel was alive for one reason. Daniel was alive, verse 22. God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. Now, in my weird sense of humor, I feel badly for the lions. They have this large meal in front of them and they're not able to eat it. Why? God shut their mouths. I figure God must have also taken care of their paws too, since it is said that uh, one swipe of a paw of a lion can kill a 150-pound gazelle. 
Daniel got out of this without a scratch. Look at verse 23. The king was overjoyed, gave orders to lift Daniel from the den. No wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. God delivered him because he trusted in his God. Our God is the living God who's able to deliver, right? That's why this story is so popular and, and gets so much attention. And I saw it in Sunday school every single year. Right here. And it should. I get it. It's an example of a great God and that we do not need to fear what man can do to us. But I suggest to you, church, we have a, a liking, I'll call it an obsession, for the miraculous. In 2006, the St. Petersburg Times reported uh, the death of a Ukrainian man who was mauled by a lioness at the Kiev Zoo. A zoo official said this man, he lowered himself by a rope into a concrete enclosure holding four lions shouting, God will save me, God will save me. And the man took off his shoes and, and, and ran toward the animals. I'm not sure why he took off his shoes. But one lioness came to meet him. She knocked him down, quickly severed his, well, I don't want to get into the details of that, but he was mauled to death. And officials stated that the incident which occurred in front of a large crowd was the first of its kind. Well, this man encountered the animal on purpose, believing that God would protect him. Is that our takeaway? If we just have enough faith, God will show off his power in some miraculous way in our lives. Is that it? I see, I think all too many Christians are trying to live on a steady diet of the miraculous. And as long as God keeps the miracles coming, their faith's doing okay. If not, I'd suggest to you, I would suggest to you that the extraordinary, the miracle is a rare occurrence. Isn't that the definition of miracle? If it happens all the time, it's not a miracle. Extraordinary is a rare occurrence, but that most of the Christian life, get this, is about necessary consistency of prolonged obedience over the everyday course of our lives. It's in the daily obedience to God where trust is built that prepares us for those crisis moments. What we learn most of, of Daniel in chapter 6 is that the crisis he faced did not create his discipline, it revealed his discipline. Did you get that? It did not, the crisis here, did not create his discipline. You know what? I think I'm going to stop praying now. No, it revealed his discipline. So here's our takeaway. When a crisis hits, it will reveal what has been there or not been there over time. When a crisis hits, it will reveal what has been there or not been there over time. And so when a crisis hits a marriage... How the couple responds is very revealing. It didn't create the response, it revealed it. When crisis hits a church, it's very revealing, very revealing. When crisis hits a family, or when, when you face a crisis, it will reveal what has been there or not there over time. Got to watch this obsession with the, with the miraculous. 70 years, at least, of Daniel's life. How many miracles are recorded? How many years of faithfulness, consistency? You see, it's a long obedience, church, in the same direction as, as Eugene Peterson put it. 
It's a long obedience in the same direction that will equip us for when a crisis hits. Are you prepared for when a crisis hits? Or are you just going to wing it? When a crisis hits, it will reveal what has been there and not been there over time. In the midst of God's redemptive plan unfolding throughout time, there stands faithful people consistently doing his work. Daniel was one such man. How about you? How about me? Craig Davison. Craig Davison is a consistent man. The Phoenix, Arizona resident began running regularly in 1978, and he hasn't missed a single day since then for the last 40 years. During that stretch, it is calculated that he has covered 207,412 miles. Now, folks, that's more than double of some cars. His routine of running is an example of consistency by itself, but what he's done running all those miles is an equally impressive lesson in consistency. You know what he did? While running, Davison keeps his eyes open for loose change, and he doesn't pass up loose change, even a single penny. And the consistent vigilance has paid off. All those dimes and nickels and pennies paid for a second honeymoon to Hawaii in 1991. As of November 2018, Davison has collected over $10,000. $10,000. Consistency pays off. But let's be honest, we frequently neglect it because the dividends come in a lot slower than we desire. You don't see the benefits. I mean, we'd all like to find $10,000, but are we willing to run 200,000 miles to get it? Whether it's finances, meaningful relationships, spiritual maturity, physical fitness, whatever it is, consistency is the best route to take. What does it take to be a bright spot in a dark world? Consistency. Long obedience in the same direction. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, as we close um, this time of worship with this song, may it reflect the desire of our heart. That Lord, we need you. We need you. We need you. Not, not, not just we, do we need you for that, that miracle. We need you every hour of our lives. We need you. May that be our prayer, oh God, as we, our desire, Lord, is to, is, to, is to keep going, is to be at long obedience in the same direction. All for your glory and praise in Jesus' name.